Welcome to the Soundtrack.Academy podcast. I'm your host, Johnny Amandri, and each week I interview a member of the film, TV, game, or media music industry. My aim is to help as many people as possible to learn the ins and outs of composing and producing for moving image. For links, show notes, and previous guests, head over to soundtrack.academy slash podcast. And if you enjoy the show, please subscribe wherever you're listening from and also leave me a review. Okay, this week's going to be a little bit different. Um, uh, if any of you follow me on, on Facebook or other social media, you might have seen I've had quite a lot going on over the last few weeks. I've not had much chance to schedule any new guests and I'm also away on holiday this week. So I thought I'd use this opportunity to introduce myself a little bit more and kind of go through the same questions that I ask my guests, but take it from my perspective as well. Before we get into that, I am planning at the moment a big revamp of the podcast as well. Um, I'm still hoping to keep it interview based, but I'm hoping to start focusing a bit more on very specific topics and go really deep onto them. So, you know, I might, if I get someone who's a specialist in horror music, we'll really focus on how to create good horror music and all kinds of other areas around music composition and production as well. So I'm hoping that's going to be really great for everybody and we're going to get a lot from that. If you might be interested in appearing on the podcast or if you know anyone that would be good for the show, please do drop me an email at johnny at soundtrack.academy. That's J-O-N-N-Y, johnny at soundtrack.academy. Just drop me an email and we can talk about what um, you might be able to bring to the show and what kind of specialisms you might be able to focus on. Uh, I'm really excited to get this new new version of the podcast out. Okay, before we actually kick into the episode, I'm going to start by saying, which you might have noticed, I am not particularly slick <laughs> or cool. Uh, I mean, I'm always very jealous of particularly of the American guests I get on the podcast who just talk so clearly and succinctly. As you can probably tell, I script uh, most of the intros, most of the things I do on the podcast. On the podcast, but scripting an entire episode would be overkill. So. I'll do my best to keep to the point and not to uh, waffle too much and to keep my stammering at bay and keep all of my ums and and other ticks out of it. And obviously it's a bit uh, strange to be sat here talking to myself and not actually interviewing anybody or having anybody ask me the questions. So I've gone through my my usual kind of structure of questions and just filled in some bullet points, which I'll, I'll talk about as we go through. So as you know, my name's Johnny Armandry. I'm a composer and educator. And currently I focus more on the education side of things, trying to teach people how to actually do film music. I'll talk a little bit about how I started in education as well um, in a moment. So music's been in my life from a very early age. We always had a piano around the house. My brother in particular is very musical. He was always playing the, the violin and then also blasting out Nirvana and other crunch 24-7. So really conflicting styles around the house from classic. We used to go listen to classical symphonies that my, my brother was playing in and then also having his loud rock music. And he's a big influence in my life, my brother. He's six years older than me, so I always used to look up to him a lot. And I had all kinds of music lessons. I was one of these people that would just jump from instrument to instrument trying to find something that I really wanted to stick with. Um, in probably my brother's footsteps when I was about four or five years old, I think. I was taken for violin lessons. Um, didn't really enjoy that. Then I started piano and pianos stuck with me through my entire kind of musical life. But then I, I also had lessons on cello at one point and again, didn't get on with that. Saxophone was my other main instrument. Uh, I studied saxophone really hard and really, really, really enjoyed that. And then because of this background in sort of playing a few different instruments, uh, when I was in 
in secondary school or high school, I was playing in all kinds of bands from my own kind of rock and grunge projects, uh, playing guitar, bass and drums and vocals, whatever, whatever would, would take my fancy to jazz and swing bands again on saxophone sometimes, sometimes on drums for, uh, in swing bands as well. And also concert bands and orchestras, um, on the, on the saxophone. So more sort of concert and marching band kind of thing. So a real spread of rock and pop, well, pop, but popular music, big band and jazz, and also uh, classical music. I then went off to uh, what we call music college in the UK. Um, for the American audience, that's kind of age 16. You can either do A-levels where you still study a variety of subjects or go specialize in a college. And I went to music college. And my, I had a plan at this point. I was going to go to college. I was going to become an absolutely incredible orchestral saxophone player um, because I don't know why I thought saxophones were still big in orchestras. <laughs> uh, I was going to work my way up through the orchestra, become a conductor, and then move into composing pieces for the orchestras I was working in and then look into, into becoming a composer. I didn't really know anything about how, how the world worked at that point. And things took a turn when about six weeks into my classical B-Tech on saxophone, I started looking towards the dark side of jazz music and decided I was going to switch my focus to jazz, scuppering all chances of playing ever, ever playing in a, in a classical orchestra. But that was such a great decision, I, I believe, for me personally, because jazz really taught me properly how to improvise and how to just create music. It was still restrictive in, in some ways, you know, when, when it came to composing, particularly at the time, digital audio workstations and things like Logic Pro weren't as advanced as they are now. So composing back then in, in the jazz realm was still more notation, which I always struggled with. I, I can read notation, no problems, but composing with notation, I really struggled with. I, it's It felt like a, a process. It felt a little bit tedious to me. So I was talking to, again, I mentioned my brother being a big influence in my life, talking to my brother um, he said that, you know, oh, music tech's where the world's going. Everyone needs to be doing music production nowadays. He was studying Japanese at university at the time, so I don't know where he had these, this insight from, but I believed him. So I looked right, coming to the end of my college program, I need to go to university. Why not apply for the music production courses here? So I applied for a few music production courses, the, um, the full kind of three-year BA, Bachelor of Arts degree, and then two different foundation degrees, one in, um, in, in, again, in general music production and one in music production for film and TV. Having never touched music production stuff in my life before, other than small projects that we did in, in, as part of my college course. So obviously I'd composed using Sibelius and then we'd had a, like a MIDI programming course, which used one of the really earlier versions of Cubase and that you had to send everything out to a, a role in JV 1010 unit to trigger those MIDI samples before importing them, the audio back in, uh, if you wanted to actually have audio to bounce. So yeah, very rudimentary stuff and I had no real experience in production, but I turned up for a, a, an interview at this production course and I beforehand I prepped as much stuff as I could to do with music production. And I chat to, chatted to the course leader at this interview who he was, a, he was a course leader for a few of the different um, pathways and told, told him what I was interested in and what my background is. And he, it was actually he, him that suggested that I do the, the production for film and TV pathway. And like I say, before then, other than obviously admiring film and music composers, I was aware of them. And I, I, you know, grew up listening to a lot of their music and the music I enjoyed playing most in the bands I was playing with was stuff from 
film and TV, whether it was Hawaii Five-O in the big band that I was playing in or the suites from uh, Lord of the Rings in the, in the uh, concert bands that I was in. So he recommended that I go for this film and TV route, and I did, and that's kind of where everything changed for me. I went in, again, thinking from the notation way that I'd been brought up, trying to compose in that kind of way, and straight away they said, here's logic, here's how it works, here's how you create sounds, and it just felt like the whole world was opened up to me. I could just, using all that improvising stuff that I learned from jazz, I could then improvise into logic, into a door, and have music created. Just absolutely changed how I worked and how I thought about music and just, yeah, revolutionized my my approach to everything. Of course, there are some negatives that come with that way of learning as well. Uh, a lot of the fundamentals of composition, I suppose you could call them, are missed a little bit, you know, the classical orchestration kind of stuff that you really need to learn was, the, the onus was put on to me to learn that myself rather than it being taught as part of the program because at the end of the day it was a music production course not a music um, comp uh, composition or orchestration course so that was three years of my life and then I decided I'd already built up quite a few contacts while I was work while I was studying and I thought I was going to give it a go as a full-time composer so we've, we graduated my, my wife and I met at, um, at university and we were together by the time we finished so we're living together as well so we both went off pursuing music. She's a classical percussionist or was a classical percussionist and I was trying to do music composition and it was fun. You know, we were both making good headway, making lots of good contacts and, you know, having some really good events. And then we decided, well, we sat down one day and kind of thought, where are we heading with this? Where are we both going with our music and sort of trying to see what lay for us in the future? And realized that wasn't really the life that we both wanted to pursue. We were barely seeing each other as it was, and the busier we were going to get, the less we were going to see of each other. So we started looking at what we might be able to do next. And I thought maybe we could go and get our master's degrees and then see where that would lead. So we looked into master's degree programs. Uh, we were actually looking at going abroad to... Um, uh, we were looking at all kinds of places. Holland was Holland was a big consideration, the, the, the Netherlands. But then I went to chat with, with one of my old mentors at, um, at the university I studied at, uh, Brian Morell, and told him this plan, you know, we're going to go abroad for a few years and study and get a master's, which hopefully will lead into me being able to teach at some, some universities. And Brian looked at me and said, you don't need to go abroad and, and do a master's. You, the amount of experience you have and the background you have, you're already qualified enough to teach. You just need to get your teaching qualifications. So change of plan. I went and got a teaching qualification, a postgraduate degree in teaching. And my, as part of that, you have to do a placement at a teaching institution. So I did my placement with Brian at the college that I was, that he was teaching at, that I used to study at, which was great. And then I worked so hard during that year so that I made sure I had just the absolute best reputation I could there. And then when some actual teaching hours came up, I applied for them, interviewed for them. Uh, the, the, that institution in particular has a very, very fair interview policy. It's not, you can't just get shooed in because you're working there already or anything like that. It is very by the book. So I'd had to, I'd had to prove myself pretty hard. But yeah, God gives them teaching hours in all kinds of things, you know. Yes, film music was what I wanted to do and what I wanted to teach. I taught 
everything you can imagine under the sun from pop music arranging, pop music ensembles, notation software, uh, music production in all kinds of genres in, in, the one, uh, in one particular module. Everything I could teach, I did. And any work that came my way through that, I ended up taking on, whether that was extra marking or extra teaching last minute, anything that came my way, I, I took in. And that made me very busy as a teacher, so busy that I couldn't, didn't really have time to work on any actual composing projects anymore. So then I decided to leap in full-time. And when the opportunity came up for me to teach full-time and then eventually run some of the courses full-time at the, at the institution, I took that opportunity. And that was what I thought would have me settled. I had a good teaching and course leading job at a really reputable institution and we were happy. But meanwhile, my wife and I had always had quite itchy feet about where we wanted to live and what we wanted to do. My wife's originally from Poland, so we talked a few times about moving to Poland, but there were a few things that, that put us off. We, at one point, were looking at Malta because we were looking at, with us both being EU citizens, we could live anywhere in the EU and Malta has, they, sp they speak English there as well as Maltese. Um, it looked like a nice place of life, but a, ni a nice place to live. We never actually visited, <laughs> just looking at pictures and, and what we could find out online. But so we were obviously, we, we were settling into our, our life and, and jobs. You know, we bought a house and had, we had a dog and um, looking to get pregnant. But still had itchy feet about where we wanted to actually end up and where we wanted to be. But no real impetus to, to go anywhere or do anything. And then I, I stumbled across the Canadian immigration website and sort of put in all of our details to sort of do a little test to see whether we might be able to have residency for Canada. And it looked like we did. But again, kind of thought, yeah, that could be cool. Maybe we could look into that. And then something absolutely mad happened. And I try not to talk about it too much because every time you talk about stuff like this, people think you're going for the sympathy vote and you're trying to <laughs> trying to get sympathy from people you know it's a typical x-factor life story thing you have the the sob story at the beginning and then when they come on and perform an average song it seems so much better but we were had a family gathering one day and my um my wife stood up to walk to the kitchen to get something and just had uh well she fell over at what it looked like and cracked her head off the side of a door and uh she was just but then she went into the, this state on the floor she just was like fitting she was out of it but no no one had any idea what was happening so real drama her um stepmother jumped in and did cpr and kept her alive for the 11 minutes that the ambulance took to get there and then when the ambulance get there took her to the hospital like i say really full on no one has any idea what's happening they got a stable in the hospital and I was someone sat by her bed. She only, at this point, she has her, her memories on like a, on a two minute loop. She couldn't remember, remember anything. And this doctor came up and said, okay, so what's happened is, is your wife's had a sudden cardiac arrest. Her heart's basically just um, gone into shock and just stopped. And I was just, just blown away. I was, what are you talking about? I think you're at the wrong, at the wrong bed. My wife's the, the, the lady that's tripped and banged her head on the, on the doorframe. They said, no, that he, the sudden cardiac arrest is what caused her to fall. Her heart's just stopped, basically. So that's just crazy. And apparently it's um, 
it's 95% of people have a sudden cardiac arrest don't make it. Uh, and every minute that you're in that state, you're 10% less likely to make it. So she was in that state for 11 minutes. Absolutely crazy. But that obviously made us take stock of our lives and perhaps misguidedly, we just decided we have to do something. We went into panic stations. Um, we have to do something with our lives. So the Canada thing became soul focused. We spent ages just focusing on, right, get us to Canada. Get, let's get our residency. Let's go. So focus on nothing but that for about a year to get all the application stuff through. Moved. And then after a while of being there, kind of realized we hadn't moved for the right reasons. We'd moved out of a panic, out of a massive feeling of having to do something with our lives. And we when we first started planning, our daughter was about six months old and a tiny little baby. And you know, they don't, babies don't do very much other than stop you from sleeping. And when she, so by the time we got to Canada, she was a year and a half. And she's starting to do a lot of stuff. And you kind of realize that grandparents things are missing out on this really, really important time. And we really felt lonely. So we thought, okay, Canada's not working out. Let's go home and just actually work out what we need to solve with our lives because obviously it's not about moving country but we decided rather than going straight back to the UK we've always wanted to give Poland a go so let's try Poland that's actually where we live now in Poland in a beautiful uh, city called Wrocław it's absolutely stunning it's like a little fairy tale um, city it's incredible but meanwhile while we were preparing the move to Canada an, uh, an old contact of mine who I'd been on a master's um a music master's degree program with Thomas George reached out to me and, and asked, he said he does, he does some online courses and was asking if I was interested in working on one with him. Now, bearing in mind everything we'd gone through and all this mad planning we were doing for Canada beforehand, any projects that had been coming up because I was so busy with my teaching, I was, I was, I, I was turning down basically saying, no, sorry, I'm, I have to focus on this, but I'd started saying yes to a lot more things. So, Thomas didn't even have to finish his first sentence before I said, yeah, why not? Let's do it. <laughs> so we created this film course together and, and released that. Thomas has a really um, a big following online. He does lots of music production uh, courses, a really high quality as well. He's amazing. And he, so we released this course together and then I basically, I think the same month it was released, I left, we left to Canada and, you know, some, Money started trickling, not a huge amount of money, but some bits, you know, a little bit of money started trickling in and reviews and people started asking questions and thanking me for making this kind of stuff accessible. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. You can help or teach so many people and they can access it so easily and are really appreciative to get this, this knowledge because the world I'd been working in before this in the in the education world, particularly at universities in the UK, fees were going up and up and up. It's nowhere near the level it is in the US, but students were having to start paying 10, nearly 10,000 pounds a year to access this education. And even though there's a really great student loan system in place in the UK, it was putting off a lot of people. And that meant a lot of these people particularly coming to study music, which traditionally in the eyes of the public and in the eyes of students' parents wasn't a, in quotes, viable career path. It didn't lead you to a job. The thought of investing all of that money, three years of 
of nearly 10 grand a year plus all of your living costs and everything, you know, coming out of uni with 50,000 pounds worth of debt hanging over your head was putting off so many students and putting off the students that I just absolutely loved working with. We had students that came from all kinds of backgrounds, but you know, some of them that they were the first person in their entire family's history to go to college and to go to university. And they were just so thankful for that and working so hard because of it. And they were being put off coming to university to do that. So that's when I, when we started talking about coming back to, to Europe, that's when I thought maybe I can have a go at teaching people film music and actually seeing if that can support me as, as to make a living as well. And that's how soundtrack.academy was born really through this bonkers <laughs> route of composing then teaching then moving around the world and then um just chance that uh, that, a, that a, a contact asked me to do a film course with him and sort of stoked that seed in my mind i'm still learning a lot about how to do what i'm doing um i'm trying to give away as much content as i can you know I, I really do as i said want to help as many people as i can but i also do need to figure out a way to support myself in the process as well trying to be honest and trying to keep myself out of trouble and trying to find the line between uh helping people and then also helping my academy to grow as well and sometimes it's been backfiring you know i've tried to share some content that, that asks people to also sign up to my email list and people haven't been too happy about that on a, on a couple of occasions and that really does affect impact me a lot it really i get really anxious about that because i hate people thinking that i might be misleading them i really don't don't mean to and people that do get onto my email list i hope or actually i've had a few people email me and, and say how much value they're getting from it so i don't want to trick people onto the list but i know that once they're on the list they will be getting lots of value but anyway, so the marketing thing, I'm, I'm still figuring out, added to the fact that I've been quite disconnected from the whole community and scene for the last few years, because when I was teaching, I was just all in with that. I, you know, I wasn't actively pursuing new composing gigs. And when I first got into teaching full-time, Facebook groups didn't really exist yet. So I missed out on getting involved with all those communities as well. So I'm sort of just now reintroducing myself into the, into the world. But it's growing. I'm getting more people interested in what I'm doing and obviously getting some really cool people finding out about the podcast and coming onto the podcast, which is really, really great as well. Whew, okay. That's my entire life story out of the way. Let's talk about the stuff that you listen to this podcast for. Let's talk a little bit about the process of film composition, how I approach things, um, my process and equipment that I use and, and bits and pieces of advice on that side of stuff as well. Okay, so my process of film composition. I've been quite fortunate in the fact that many of the projects I've worked on, I've had scripts well in advance, which isn't always the case. But even so, having the script well in advance, it's good to get an idea of the story, but personally for me, so much of the information I get about how the music is going to sound comes from how the film looks. And I think that's what, such an important thing to remember is how the film looks and how the film feels should be the biggest indicator of how the music should sound. If you've got a, I mean, I mean, on the 
surface level, you know, if the film looks really highly polished and really great, then the music should also have that high polished and high production value as well. But if the film looks like it's uh, an indie project and filmed on kind of rubbishy handheld cameras and is, is a bit sketchy, then the music also has to have that feeling to it as well. So that's why I, I do read the scripts and I do think a lot about music ideas, but I don't get set on anything too heavily because when, the, when I see the actual movie, things change a lot. I mean, a more recent project I was working on, I read the script and I said to the director, like, I have straight away, these are the first things that jump to mind about the music and how the music should sound. And the director kind of said, yeah, I mean, that, sound, that sounds pretty cool. Let's, um, let's just see, see what happens. And then he sent me the, the film after it had been shot and edited. And I was so, so far away with the musical ideas that I'd come up with from reading the script. The film just looked completely different to how, how I thought it should look based on reading the script. So, I mean, just like when you read a book and then you see a film made of the book, your all the pictures and the images of the characters you had in your head and the scenes in your head look totally different in the film. And that can sometimes be disappointing and it can sometimes be a revelation. So reading the script is just that. It's your imagination when you read the script. And even all the shots and the cuts that you make in your head and how you imagine that script might come to life can be completely different to how the director is taking something to life. So I do read the script, but then I allow myself to wait until the films actually, I actually have the movie. And it's about, I talk with the director as much as I possibly can to find out you know, what their aim is for the project and what they think about everything. And then when I get the first cut of the movie, I'll watch it. And without having talked too much to the director about specifics, I try to come up with my own ideas for where the music should go in the film and what the music should be in the film. And then go back to the director and, and see what they said and see if we're in the same ballpark or see whether we're absolutely miles apart from each other. And then we work out the best possible solution for the project. We work to work out how it sh which version of events is going to best suit the film. Obviously, the director has usually has quite a clear vision of music if they're a good director. So um, they kind of already know how the music should fit with the film. Really, I try to think about the more out of the box stuff, the non-typical stuff, things that could really help elevate the project to, to that next level. And then once I kind of have the um, idea of where and, and when, and I've talked a little bit with the director, I really have a proper conceptualizing session for myself, a real thinking session where I'm purely thinking about what mood or tone the music is going to set, what kind of emotions the music is going to bring about in, in general in the film, what the actual purpose of the music is. If I watch the film and on its own, the film is already amazing without any music. I mean, films are rarely amazing, <laughs> amazing without any music with and there's only a few exceptions. Um, but if the film is already great, then what is the point of the music? There's no point in me just underlining everything that's happening in the film. I have to find a new way that the music can help push the film in, in certain areas. Or if the film isn't great, how can the music make it great? These are the kinds of things I'm thinking about. What is the actual uh, story of the music? I'm not sure who said it first, but there's, a, there's an old story that the composer is the final writer on a project because with the music, you can still change and shape the story so much um and i really do try to think about that while i'm i'm thinking about these ideas how can my music really shape or change or 
improve or not even improve, but how can it, how, how can I tell a new story with the music? What can I add to it? Some of my favorite composers, I mean, people like uh, Carter Burwell, who works a lot with the, the Coen brothers. I watched an interview with him talking about in Bruges and, uh, and, and he said the same thing about Fargo as well is it's already such a funny comedy, dark, odd situation. If the music was also comedic and funny and silly, it would just be too much. It would just be, you know, what's the point of just unlining it? The music wouldn't have any purpose. It would just be telling, it would just be, you know, people know to laugh. Why do you need the music to also tell you to laugh? Which is why for a lot of the music he does for the Coen brothers and for things like In Bruges, it's very, very serious music, almost too serious because it just makes the whole situation so much more funny when it looks like a really serious situation, but it's actually a comedy. And I know some people that have watched In Bruges and just don't understand it. They're like, they're watching the whole thing and they don't realise it's a comedy because the music's so serious. But if you do realise it's a comedy, the music adds so much to a film like that. So that's what I'm trying to get to with my music as well is, what is you know, what's the point of having the music there? And only after I've done all that do I really have a proper spotting session with the director and really firm up all the ideas, work out exactly where the music's going to start and stop and and which parts of the concept I've come up with the director likes and which part they don't like. And then after the spotting session with the director, I always try to talk with the sound designer as well. I think this is so important and something that is often overlooked, but I could write an amazing piece of music for a certain scene, but the sound designer might want to do something very specific with the sound in that scene as well. And generally, sound in the film world is more important than music for the the mise-en-scene to, to capture the actual um, mood of a scene. So if the sound needs to be heard there and you've got music that is clashing or fighting with that sound, they're just going to turn the music down. Whereas if you can find a way to work with the sound, so if there's a high pitch, if there's loads of high pitch stuff happening in the sound, maybe there's a load of mosquitoes flying around a room, don't write in that high register, do the low end stuff instead and vice versa. So I do spend a lot of time talking with sound designer and trying to work out their ideas and their thoughts and any particular scenes they're working on. Same with uh, like big hit points. I've scored things before where there's like a big, big hit and I've spent ages trying to get the music to feel like a really big hit and I've done drafts over draft and built and built until this music is just, just ridiculous big hit with everything, every technique you can imagine to make something sound bigger. And then it's gone and had the sound design, the design added as well. Because I, as I've been composing, I've thought it doesn't feel big enough. But then the sound's been added as well. And then suddenly it's too much. There's bangs and explosions and everything else. And all the music going way over the top. Well, in actual fact, I could have done nothing with the music. And that hit point would have still been effective because of the sound design. So I learned my lesson about really finding out what the sound designer is doing. After my conceptualizing, spotting session with the director, talking with the sound design, then I start thinking about sounds, musical ideas, building my palette that I'm going to work with, you know, which instruments or which um, synth sounds or what kind of sounds. And if it's instruments that I already have, I, I tend to start with descriptor words. So do I want the music to be dark or light or scratchy or smooth? And those kind of words then help inform what type of sounds I'll be using, whether that's instrumental sounds like pianos or strings or, or whatever else, or synthetic sounds, sound designed kind of stuff as well. So I start with words that help me then inform which instruments I'm going to, I'm going to use. 
I'm not such a fan of um, big orchestral music or real instruments when I can't use real instruments or, or, or real orchestral music. There's, and I'll talk about this a little bit at, at the end of the episode as well, but I'd much prefer using creatively found stuff and interesting sounds and noises that aren't pretending to be a real instrument than sample libraries pretending to be real instruments. And that's just me personally. I don't think there's anything wrong with people wanting to use sample libraries pretending to be real instruments. I mean, I say that, I mean, I use pianos all the time and they're all sample libraries and some of my, well, most of my scores do have some real instruments on them, which are created through sample libraries. But if I can use more creative sounds to create something, I kind of prefer doing that. Or if I can actually record real instrumentalists, that's the, that's the dream. But obviously budgets don't always allow that. So yeah, I spent some time thinking about the sound palette at this stage and what I'm actually going to use to create the score. And then I, I've already thought about whether I'm having themes or moods, or whatever else in that concept stage. So then it's a case of building my themes while also working with the visuals. I know some people, everyone approaches this totally different. Some people create their kind of overture with all of their themes on at the beginning and then they arrange it out for the film. Other people start at the beginning of the film and they just work in a, in a line from start to finish creating music. Some people start with the hardest cue or the cue they think is going to be the hardest to approach in the film. Others start with the easiest to get themselves into it. There's no right or wrong way in terms of where or how you start. I tend to try to get my themes put together, but by actually scoring to the film as well. So I don't create an overture and then arrange it. I, I think, right, okay, this character has a theme, so let me find a, a cue which has this character in it a lot and then I create that scene with the with the theme with the music and then I'll find the second theme that I might have might have a different character theme so I'll go and find that a scene with that character in and, and write that scene so it's kind of a, a a blend of creating an overture and also working directly to to the picture and I mostly sketch at first as well so um I'll I'll kind of sketch out ideas, whether I'll just have a piano sound loaded in or a pad sound or something and just, just get ideas and then I'll build that up a bit more. Not always, that does depend on the final overall sound. So there's some films where it's very textural based and obviously sketching out a texture is doesn't really make sense, it doesn't really work. So um, on those type of things, I'll, I'll be more actually creating the final sound as I go. And then one thing that I do that I've not really seen that many other people do, I don't think, is I can have a mini recording session for myself. And what I mean by that is, obviously, I'm not, I don't always go and record real instrumentalists, although if I can, that would be at this, this stage as well. But I'll treat each of my instruments as if it's a real instrument. As, uh, I treat each of my virtual instruments, my sample libraries, as if they are, they are a real instrument. So I'll go in and I'll solo, if I have a violin part, I'll solo the violin part, and I'll take off all the reverb and get it as dry as I can, as if I'm in a recording studio, and then get that violin sounding as good as it possibly can on its own. And I bounce that to audio. And I do the same for every instrument, whether it's a synthetic instrument or whether it's a an, meant to be an acoustic instrument. I kind of record the sound and I get that down to audio. Now, this probably isn't the best way of doing things um, until you have a fully, fully locked picture and you know it's 100% finished because the problem with doing it this way 
is once it's audio, changing things is a pain. You've got to go back and uh, fix all of the, you know, the, it's not just a case of oh, move the MIDI note. It's a case you've got to open the old MIDI project, go into that instrument, change the MIDI note, bounce it, re-import it as audio. So having that recording session has pluses and minuses. Another uh, One of the positives is that it kind of gives an end point. It locks it down. It makes me focus on each instrument. And then I import all the audio into a final kind of mix session and do my mix with audio, basically. But the other benefit of the, the MIDI recording session is that I can focus. I don't have to worry about um, overloading my system. You know, if I have too many MIDI tracks open or anything like that, because I can just, well, as I'm sketching out or getting my initial ideas, they can just be on a very basic sample library patch. Um, even like sometimes I've even used Logic Basic stock instruments. But then when I go into the recording session, I'll load up the high quality samples and get it sounding as good as it can. But I don't have to worry about overloading my system and being careful with resource management or anything like that. So yeah, then that's I'm a recording session. I like to have things finished, you know? So I always think if I was working with a real orchestra, I would have to write the music, have them record it, and then mix it. There's, you know, that is the process. You can't write it, have them record it, then go back and change a few things and then mix it because <laughs> it's already recorded. So that's why I like to have that that thing. I like to say the music is finished, it's being bounced and being recorded, and then I have the mix session at the end. Obviously, some elements of the mix might have been in the creation part as well, depending on what it is. So if there's a, a delay, for example, that it defines the actual instrument, then that will be part of the recording session uh, or any other creative effects and things like that. But that's generally my, my process. Sounds quite long, but... So talk to the, read the script, talk to the director, have a conceptualizing session all around the mood and the purpose of the music, do the spotting session, talk to the director and then the sound designer, then come up with my sound palette and some musical ideas, create my themes while working with specific sections that have those themes in the movie, sketch it out and build it out and then build it out and orchestrate it or arrange it out onto the final instruments and then have my recording session and then finally do my mix and bounces. And that's the process I've come to use over, over the years. And as I've said, and I've seen people, I saw someone again in a Facebook group the other day asking, what's the best process or what process does everybody use and all this kind of stuff. And as you'll have heard through 30 episodes, you've been having 30 episodes of the podcast already. Through the 30 episodes of the podcast, as you'll have heard, Everybody has a different approach. There is no right or wrong approach. There's no correct way. There's no incorrect way. It's whatever works for you and helps you get to the end result. Obviously, things change a little bit if you start working with a team of people. But even then, the team should be working around around your creative process. And that's just my creative process. It's I, I, I've found that through teaching film music, breaking it down in this way is quite a nice way to teach because it does give people a kind of process and a method to go through. But I'm by no way saying that this is the best method or the only method or, or anything. This is just one of many, many different methods you can use to compose a film. Equipment. I always ask guests about equipment. So um, I'm all in the box. I don't have any external stuff. Um, for my instruments, I've been using East-West um, Symphonic Orchestra forever, sort of since, not since it first came out, but near enough, actually, since it first came out. So I've learned how to use that, and I just like that when I, when I come to use instruments. But again, I'm not focused on that big orchestral sound or particularly focusing on orchestral instruments. So 
if that is your focus, there are ways of blending different libraries or using different libraries that can create a better result than using something like East-West on its own. I prefer more interesting or unique sounds. So, um, you know, libraries like uh, Violence by Virtue, which is violins, but just twisted and distorted and broken up and used in all kinds of bonkers way that have these really cool sounds. Um, in fact, I've just put together a massive list of free sample libraries, 54 free sample libraries that are all just cool stuff. So like the recording of a bus shelter being hit with stuff and the recording of a Porsche being, you know, the indicator noises and door slam, but then twisted to make it sound like an instrument and music boxes and all this kind of stuff. I think if you're working on low budget stuff or if you're not working with real instruments, I should say, not low budget, but stuff where you can't afford or don't want to have a real live instruments recorded, the fun, odd little sounds and things you can find are just so much more fun than trying to get sample libraries to sound like real instruments. You spend all your time pulling your hair out because your cello doesn't sound like a cello, whereas instead of a cello, what if you were using a, a homemade um, cereal box with a string tied on it and you were trying to bow that to get a cello sound? Then it doesn't matter if it sounds like a cello or not because it's not a cello. So yeah, I yeah I like interesting sounds. I have done something. I've recorded quite a lot of my own samples. I don't build full sample libraries out of it, but you know, percussion sounds. I'll try and find stuff around the house that I can use rather than just using a normal um, sample library. So whether that's a toolkit or tapping on the desk or whatever else. I try to find stuff that I can use myself. If all else fails, um, I use my own voice a lot as well. Uh, you know, you can spend ages and ages trying to create or figure out some mad sound design to get a sound that you want but if you can roughly get it with your own voice and then manipulate your own voice do that <laughs> i've used uh, my own like, there was a, a cq that i wrote that i really wanted like pneumatic sounding robot legs walking and i just couldn't figure out how to make the sound it was years ago when i first started i had no idea where to start to create that sound and i just used my voice and then manipulated it just just recorded it in the in these in these crazy ways so yeah, I in the box um, using Logic Pro X um, with as many interesting sounds as I can I can find. And then, as you'll all expect, my one piece of advice for someone getting started: great film music relies solely on purpose and creativity. So it doesn't matter if you don't have the world's best sample libraries. Getting Spitfire Audio's latest released and every single one of Cine Sample's libraries isn't going to make you a better composer. I've got, I have three film scores that have won International Film Music Awards and not one of them was created with an orchestral sample library. One was entirely self-recorded from bits and bobs that I found around the house, um, lots of tools and things like that because the whole premise of the film was that the guy was trying to, he was a mechanical engineer trying to bring his father back to life using clockwork. So I just replicated all clockwork sounds and stuff I had around my house. Um, one was recorded with a 25 piece string section. So again, it's not, not sample libraries and, and the string section was non-typical. I purposefully didn't have uh, as many bases as I needed because it needed to be, um, uh, it needed to have that kind of, re it was Bernard Herman inspired, so I wanted to have that kind of retro sound. So it was kind of an up upside down string section. And, and then another, one of my other, sorry, my final um, award winning score is mostly me and my wife singing and making noises. Um, a couple of synth sounds underneath. 
Virtue's Violence was on there and, and a bit of piano. So, you know, those have all been recognised, all those scores have been recognised for how they worked with the film and none of them relied on a sample library. So think about being creative with what you have and creating something great with, with what you've got rather than thinking a sample library is going to solve all your problems. In fact, someone, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, if I can find the link, I'll add it in the show notes. Someone shared something in the group a few, in, in a few of the say, Facebook groups a few weeks ago. With, they'd taken Hans Zimmer's advice about composing with a cardboard box and they'd scored a whole scene from a film with nothing but a cardboard box. That's the kind of thing I like. That's the kind of stuff that I would say is purposeful and creative. They're set out with a purpose and they've been really creative as to how they've got that. So don't be put off or scared by the way other people create music. There's lots of people that share these massive monumental templates, hundreds and hundreds of instruments in there. And I look at that and I think that's terrifying. I, I, I don't know where to, I wouldn't know where to start with a template like that. But again, if you spend a week building a template with 250 th instruments in it, that doesn't mean you then suddenly know how to compose or that you're going to create a better film score. You could spend a week building that template and someone else could spend a week figuring out all the different noises a cardboard box can make and the person with the noises from the cardboard box could still create a better film score than you could with even a thousand different instrument tracks or whatever else in your template. I know templates are good for getting started and I'm not bashing people for using templates at all. I'm just saying that it's not a solution to a problem and I don't want people to be put off when they see these huge, huge things put together, um, particularly when they're starting out as well. You know, a lot of my favourite scores are, are really minimal all about the story i mean a lot of carter burwell's music is is quite minimal some of it's some of it's a bit bigger but a lot of my favorite bits of his scores the piano bits and in bruges are just really nice and small people like nathan johnson the, the the soundtrack for or the score for brick is one of my favorite um scores it's and he's created it with just stuff that they had lying around in his student flat so there's bottles being tapped and um a cheap acoustic guitar with pens strapped to it and all kinds of weird noises and stuff that have just been manipulated. Those are great. They, they all help add the story and add to the aesthetic of the film. And personally, I'd much prefer to hear film music with live recorded pots and pans and interesting sounds than film music made with a sampled orchestra or sampled instruments. So just like all of my guests do, my one piece of advice <laughs> became a bit long. Uh, but yeah, great film music relies solely on purpose and creativity. Don't be put off by what you see other people doing. I hope you found that episode interesting. I hope I didn't, I've, I fulfilled my promise of not waffling on too much or stammering or stuttering or um, just constantly going on about myself. It's, I'm just like so many composers, you know, I suffer a lot with imposter syndrome and, and, uh, and anxiety. So the thought of sitting here and talking about nothing but me for this uh, nearly an hour was terrifying when I first sat down to come and do this, but I really hope that that you uh, got something out of that episode. And remember, if you are interested in coming on the show or if you know anybody that might be interested in or might be you'd like to see on the show or you think might be great for the show, drop me an email, johnny at soundtrack.academy. I look forward to hearing you. Thank you so much. Have a great week and I'll speak to you all soon. Thank you for listening and don't forget to subscribe, leave me a review and share the link with your friends. 
One last thing before you go, I also have a closed Facebook group for composers that's dedicated to helping you learn all about composing and producing for Moving Image. It's a growing community and a safe place to ask questions or to get advice on all aspects of music for media, either directly from me or from other musicians in the group. Just visit soundtrack.academy slash Facebook group to join. I'll see you in there.